We know from uh, chapter 2, verse 43, that many signs and wonders were, were being done through the hands of the apostles. So there's, Luke makes it really clear to us there's a lot of miraculous stuff going on during this time. So it makes the, kind of begs the question, why would he want to kind of highlight this one? Why is he focusing on this instance of this layman being healed? And, and that's really what we're going to talk about is the why. Why is he, is he focusing on this? Uh, the first thing is that we notice that this provides a picture of need. If you, if you look at verse 1 again, it says, Peter and John, they went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer. Ninth hour would be about 3 p.m. Now, what's interesting about this is that, uh, it, one, it shows culturally they were still wanting to worship God with the Jews, with the Israelites, the other Israelites. They, were, they, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They saw him as the, the Jewish Messiah uh, of, the, of the, the nation of Israel. So they wanted to be with those Jewish people, their Jewish brethren, to try to convince them that uh, Jesus is indeed the Messiah. So they went there. But what's interesting is they, they go at the hour of prayer. Now, the hour right before this would have been the hour of sacrifice. They don't go to that time. Why? Because Jesus is the sacrifice. They know they don't need to be there. That need's already been met. But they do go at the hour of prayer. It's like the, the, Peter and John are kind of exemplifying that they knew what their need was. They needed God to continue to intervene in their life. So they go at the hour of prayer, practicing that dependence upon God. Now, the certain, the certain lame man, this man who's there, it, it's, he's described specifically as someone who's been lame from his mother's womb. He's been uh, laid daily at this temple. Uh, so here he is. He's, he's a person that obviously if he's laid there, he probably is also Jewish or of, Israel, of the nation of Israel. He's in a place where he himself can't even get to a place where he can get help, nor can he himself walk into the temple, into the place where God's presence is manifested. Instead, he's stuck there, kind of just waiting, trying to kind of eke out an existence day by day. And again, that's a great picture of our human need, our human condition. That we, we can be really kind of close to where we think the presence of God is, where we might think we get an idea of what God might be like, but we ourselves do not have the ability to walk in there. We can't go in that place. But even also these that are mentioned here, it says all those who enter the temple, those who, who this layman would ask alms from, uh, from. These were people who, who I would say were religiously blind to their need. Because remember, this is, you're talking about a group of people who, first and foremost, probably knew who Jesus was. They were probably, many of them, at least some of them, were among the crowd that would have said, crucify him. And a week before that would have said, Hosanna in the highest. And here they they've also were probably aware of what had happened at Pentecost, because 3,000 of their brethren became followers of this Jesus. And so they would have known about that, yet they still don't believe. They still see this as some sort of a, an odd sect off to the side. So they don't even see their own need yet. But everyone there, make no doubt about it, was in need. They were totally in need. Now, we also pick it up in verse 3, and, and, and what we see in the situation is uh, Peter responding to this, to what's going on here, but he's not so much responding to the need, as I think the text shows, as he's responding to the leading of God's Holy Spirit. It says in verse 3, who, this man who's lame, seeing Peter and John about to come into the temple, asked for alms, like he was doing with everybody. And notice what it says, Peter now, fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. And so this layman gave him his attention, expecting to receive probably some money from them. But Peter says, silver and gold I don't have. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Um, there's, a, there's a funny uh, story 
I don't know if it's true, if it's just a story. Supposedly there was a, a story of a, of a monk who, who went into a certain room of the monastery and they saw the other monks uh, counting money that they had gathered from the offering. And so the monk that's counting the money says, I guess we can no longer say silver and gold, I have none. And the monk that walked in uh, said, yes, but neither can we say in the name of Christ, rise up and walk. And just, this is this great picture of, of here's the, the church, here's Peter. They don't have much. I mean, the, we'll see in the, in, the, in the near context, or we saw even earlier in chapter 2, how uh, they were sharing all things together, but they weren't getting rich off of this. It was to take care of the needs of the poor. They didn't have much, but then they had everything because they had Jesus, and he could do anything. Now, it's interesting here because... Think about this. This man has been laid daily at the entrance to the temple. This man, lame from birth. Every day he's there, which means every day at the hour of prayer, thousands of people are seeing him. That means every day, even Peter and John and the other apostles, as they're going, other believers, as they're going in there, are seeing this man. And yet, why this day? And what it does communicate is he's not so much ministering to the need. He's not going, oh, there's a need. I really should help that poor paralyzed man. It's, it's more of just the Spirit saying, look, look at that guy. And it's interesting because even the way Luke describes this, it says that, that Peter fixes his eyes on him. It's like maybe for the first time Peter really notices, or maybe what it is, is for the first time Peter looks at him and sees him as somebody that God might do something for right then. Now, my personal conviction is that what's happening here is Peter is receiving what we call a gift of faith. Like what we see in the book of 1 Corinthians that talks about some have a gift of faith. That's different from just saving faith or choosing to believe in, in, uh, in the gospel. That's different. Anybody can, in one sense, any, all believers choose to believe the gospel. They all have that kind of saving faith. But there's a, such a thing as a gift of faith where you have a supernatural enablement to know that God wants you to do something radical at that moment. And I think this is what's happening, that the God the Spirit is leading Peter to say, I'm going to do something right here. And so he says, in the name of Christ, rise up and walk. And of course, what he does is he takes him by the right hand, he lifts him up, immediately he says his feet and ankle bones receive strength. Now, just as kind of a side note, that phrase, his feet and ankle bones receive strength, it's actually um, a medical, medical terminology in the Greek language, which is one of the reasons why it proves that Luke probably wrote this, Luke being a physician. And so it gives kind of evidence that, to, that, to that end. But he, he picks up, Peter picks up uh, this lame man by the hands and says, and lifts him up. And it, it's, it's interesting, too, that the Bible describes, it wasn't just like he walked up and he was kind of, oh, hey, I can, I can stand, and oh, look at this, I'm being healed. It was like, boom, he's up, and he's, he's doing the jig. He's dancing. I mean, he's excited. And he's completely and totally healed. Now, I think it's important as well because we're going to talk about healing as we go through the book of Acts as it comes up. We do believe that God does still heal supernaturally today. In other words, what we're seeing here could happen today. It does happen today in different places. We do believe that. But it's also important to recognize that it's, it's, just because it doesn't happen this way doesn't mean we shouldn't be asking God to heal. In other words, it's, it's appropriate for us to ask God to heal, whether he's using natural means, supernatural means, whether it's happening immediately or not immediately. But the kind of healing that the Bible talks about as gifts of healing are these kinds of things here. And I think it's important to make that distinction. So it's good for us to pray and ask God to heal and give God glory if someone's gotten better. It's good for us to say, thanks God, we prayed for that, and that person's gotten better. But gifts of healing are what you kind of see here, where someone is instantaneous and supernaturally and, and undeniably healed.
So he does this, okay? <clears throat> and, and all the people see this, and they see him, uh, they see this lame man walking and leaping and praising God, and they see this happen, and the people do, and they know, they all know, it says in verse 10, that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. And you have to sort of wonder, okay, Lord, why didn't you heal this guy sooner? Why didn't you provoke somebody else to do this? Or maybe one of the apostles weeks or months before. Maybe not. Why didn't Jesus go and see that guy? Maybe Jesus would have seen that guy if he had been put there for a long time and Jesus went into the same temple. Why didn't Jesus heal this guy then? And, he, and this is one of the things that's really important about how God moves when he does move supernaturally. He doesn't move on our timetable or for our purposes. And he doesn't just move because there's a need. And don't get me wrong, it's not that he doesn't have great compassion for all of our needs, including our physical ailments. The Bible teaches that clearly. But the thing is, God does what he wants to do when it's going to most show something about the gospel, something about who Jesus is. Which brings us to the next point. I believe the reason Luke is highlighting this healing of the lame man is because it does highlight the power of Jesus. Look what happens in verse 11. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran into the, together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. And when they saw Peter, when Peter saw it, he responded to the people. Now the kind of idea here is he sees these people running in and they're looking at him like, like with this question on their face, the question they didn't ask. How? How did this happen? And, and, and think about it. These guys had seen this same lame man for years. They would have known he's not a fraud. He's not just some guy acting like he's sick to get money. They would have known that, that uh, uh, they would have probably known a story that he was lame from his mother's birth. They would have saw the shriveled, the shriveled muscles or lack of muscles in his legs. They would have seen all this. They couldn't deny that this was something happening right before them. And they want to know, how is this happening? And, and Peter's answer is really important because Peter, listen, he says, Why do you look so intently at us as though our power or godliness uh, through our power of godliness, has made this man walk. Now he says, our power. It's really clear that he's saying, listen, we have no ability on our own. We do not in ourselves possess the power to do these kinds of things. That's important as well. Because we're talking about God still doing supernatural works. When people start saying, I have the power, I can do this when I want to do this, that's not what we see modeled in Scripture. These guys said, it's not us. We're not the ones doing this. But also they even said, nor our godliness. Now these were godly guys. These were guys that were pursuing Jesus, a good relationship with Jesus, wanting to, to follow after him, wanting to be godly men. But they're being really clear, it's not that we are better than you or, or that somehow our commitment to Jesus is what merits this. It's really important to know that. I found often when God has worked through me in, the, in, in some of the most powerful ways, were times when I just actually, to be honest, wasn't very godly. I was really rusting with things or struggling with things. It wasn't necessarily feeling great faith. And that's not, that's, I'm not saying that God does that on purpose in the sense that God only is going to use us if we're, we're, we're not being what we need to be. That's not the point. The point is God does what he wants to do. It's not us. It's him who does it. It's him who does it. So, so they say this, and if you drop down to verse 16... It says, Peter goes on to say, And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. 
And so Peter's being clear, look, look, uh, it wasn't us, it's not our power, we have no ability to do this, it's not our godliness, it's not because we're somehow better than you that God wants to use us more. It's really Jesus. Now, when he says, and his name, please don't think this is like somehow uh, them using the name Jesus as a mantra or something. This is not like there's a magic in the verbalization of the name Jesus Christ or Yeshua Mashiach, or however they would say it in Hebrew. There's no power in the verbalization of that per se. When they say, talk about the, in the name of Jesus, what they mean is in the authority of Jesus. That he has all authority and they recognize it's his authority. So that they're saying, look, it's not us. It's the authority. It's Jesus. If he wants to do this, he can do this anytime he wants to. It's his authority. But also, he doesn't just say it that way. Notice he says, look, it's his name and through faith in his Name. Name, the name of Jesus doesn't just mean his authority, it also is a reference to his character. When we talk about uh, a person's name, it's, it's, it's a reference to what are they like? What are their characteristics? What, what's their, uh, yeah, what are, what are they like? And so he's talking about not just the authority of Jesus, but a trust in the character of Jesus. So he can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, he's Lord, but also he is the kind of Savior, the kind of Lord that sees a lame man and says, I can help this guy, that has compassion, that, that has power. And so, it's, But it's not even just that. He continues to say, look what he continues to say in verse 16. Yes, the faith which comes through him. Talking about this idea of, of this confidence that comes, that had come to Peter from three and a half years of walking with Jesus, of seeing Jesus crucified, of seeing Jesus being risen from the dead, of hearing Jesus then teach him for 40 days, and then seeing Jesus ascend to heaven. He had complete confidence in this Jesus. So the, the thing is, what he's doing is, is he's pointing, look, it has nothing to do with this. It's completely Jesus who does this. Now, to make it clear to this Jewish audience, he wants to be really clear about the Jesus he's talking about. And I find this interesting because sometimes in religious circles now, we can talk about Jesus as this idea. Yeah, the Christ, the, and the New Age kind of movement talks about a Christ consciousness, and it's kind of just an idea or a thought or a, an ideal that we reach for. But the Scripture never treats Jesus that way. It always focuses on the reality of his humanity, that he's a real person. And it's interesting because in the same way that he's a real person, his reality as a human, as well as being God the Son, points to the reality of God. And Peter, talking to this Jewish audience, wants to make sure they get this. He's really keen to identify who the Jesus is who healed him. So he says to them, look at verse, going back to verse 13, he says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he determined to let him go, but you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for the murderer to grant you, grant, be granted to you, and you killed the Prince of Life, whom he raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses." Now, a lot of things I want to go through quickly that he says. He, first of all, identifies Jesus as the one who was glorified by the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, he's the Son of God, but not just any God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel. This is the covenant-making God, and he's the Son of that God and Father. That's who he is. But he also, listen, notice, notice when he says, he calls him the Holy One and the Just. 
not just one who's kind of attained to a holiness or one who's attained to a righteousness, but the measure of those things. That's who he is. That's how he's preaching, how he's being presented by Peter to these Jews. They would have definitely heard it this way. And when he refers to him as the prince of life, you may have a, a note in the margins of your Bible that says originator. That's the idea. He's the one that kind of, he's the, as we sang tonight, he's the giver of life. And that's how they're presenting him. He's the, he's the giver of life. Now, this is interesting because if you remember back in John's gospel, Jesus said this about himself. Jesus was really clear. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. He's speaking of himself. And those, will, uh, those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, notice, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. And so Jesus claimed to be the giver of life, the one who has life in himself, the one who can give life to people, can raise them from the dead even. But notice also how he um, refers to him here as kind of the, as the suffering Messiah, as the prophesied Messiah. Look at verse 17. He says, yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance. He's speaking to these Jews. I know that in other words, you crucified them in ignorance. As you did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. And so what, what Peter's doing here is he's, he's pulling them out. And here's the reality. This Jewish audience that would have been listening to him, some would have thought, but we're the suffering servant. But others would have thought, yeah, the Messiah somehow suffers, but we don't see how that would work because he's supposed to be victorious and take over the world. But this is what the scripture says. Isaiah 53. And they made his grave with the wicked. How did Jesus die? Between two thieves. But with the rich at his death, or is Jesus buried in the tomb of a rich man? Because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Why did they kill him? Because he did something wrong? No, but because he claimed he was God and they didn't want to believe it. Yet, it, notice, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. And when you make his soul an offering for sin, notice, his soul an offering for sin, speaking again of Jesus, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By the way, we're the labor of his soul, those who come to faith in Christ. By, listen, his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. And he shall bear their iniquities. To justify in Scripture means to render innocent. This is what the, the Old Testament Scriptures prophesied about the coming Messiah. He'd be a suffering servant. Peter's saying, listen, in case you get this wrong, the reason this man is walking is because the, the, the promised Messiah, who God said would suffer, suffered under your hand, and God raised him from the dead. And fulfilled all that the scripture has said about the Messiah. Interesting because Peter again doesn't mince words by saying, you know, the one you guys crucified. Now, the reason I bring this up too, the reason I, I want to make sure that we notice that is don't forget too, here's Peter, he's being radically bold. That in itself to me is a testimony to the Holy Spirit. 
Because don't forget, just really months, maybe weeks before this time, Peter was the one saying, I will die for you, Jesus. And Jesus said, you're going to deny me three times. And what did Peter do? Denied him three times in front of a much smaller crowd. But after he saw the risen Jesus, after he communicated and related to the risen Jesus, after he received the power of the Spirit at Pentecost, Peter could boldly say in front of thousands of men who would easily kill him, who he knew some of the same men probably were responsible for killing his lords, he says, the guy you killed is resurrected, is alive. And he's the one who did this. So Luke picks this. Luke picks this scene, I think, to bring this out. But there's one more thing, and it's one more thing that we're going to cover incredibly briefly, considering what it brings up. And that is, this, not just this scene of him healing this layman, but the preaching of Peter underscores, listen, this promise of restoration. Remember in the very beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus ascends, what do the angels say to the disciples? Hey, don't be keep looking in the sky. The same Jesus is going to come back in the same way. And they were expecting, they had this expectancy as Jesus followers of Jesus coming back any time. And they wanted the, the, the Jews to be restored and believe in him. And they wanted that perfect kingdom, God's perfect kingdom to come in its fullness. And they were anticipating this. And so motivated by that, Peter says in verse 19, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that the times of refreshing may come. Now, we're going to see in a second that this promise of restoration that Peter's going to refer to has a future fulfillment. But it's really important to recognize this idea of God sending his chosen king to right all that's wrong in the world is not pie in the sky. It is the hope that we have. The things that God describes about the world that he makes, about the world he is, this new creation that he is remaking, is the world that all of us want. It's the world where there is no more sin and selfishness. It's a world where we actually love each other the way we're supposed to love each other. It's a world without sickness, death, and disease. It's a world where he reigns in righteousness. It's a world where we love him as he deserves and we understand and know it. It's a world that's perfect. It's a world that we're not in yet. But one of the coolest things about being a Christian is that this promise of future restoration can uh, profoundly affect us right now. When, When Peter says repent or turn to God, turn away from your sins, turn to God, when he says that, he says repent, be converted for what? So that your sins can be blotted out. When they would do sort of uh, contracts about loans in that day, they would use an ink that doesn't have any, uh, it didn't have much metals, it didn't have iron in it and such. And so it wouldn't really bite into the paper that much acid. It wouldn't bite into the paper. And so when they wanted to sort of say, okay, that debt's been paid, they'd just get a rag and kind of smudge it away. They'd blot it out, smudge it away. There'd be no record left, in other words, of what was owed. That's the idea here. That when we turn to Jesus, we recognize, wait, our sins crucified him, but that was to pay for our sins. And now that he's resurrected, if I am willing to turn from my sins and put my faith in him, he doesn't just go, okay, I'll forget about it for now. He blots out all of our sins, all of our transgressions. That's what the Bible talks about in the book of Colossians. 
that Jesus took our sins. He blotted out the, the, the accusations against us or the requirements against us, and he nailed them to the cross. This is what he's, he's offering him. And he says, when this happens, not only do you know that you have your sins forgiven, but also what happens? There's times of refreshing that come from the presence of the Spirit, the presence of the Lord with us. Times are refreshing. I, I don't know of anything that gives me more peace, more joy, more motivation to kind of keep pressing on, especially when things are tough, than knowing that all my sins are forgiven and nothing can snatch me out of the hand of my Savior. That's a great thing. I, I Honestly, I have not seen anything, any other even idea that anyone's brought forth that is better than knowing that the guilt that I know I have has been blotted away, been forgiven, and that God is with me. The presence of God is with me forever. And so he says this to them. But also notice what he says, verse 20. This not only does this have a profoundly, this promise restoration profoundly affects our, us now, but also, listen, it is something that is going to be the kind of consummation of all the prophecies of Scripture. Everything the Bible talks about, this kingdom that we're waiting for, all of it is consummated in this coming kingdom at this time of restoration. Look what he says. He says, you know, that and that God may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before, whom heaven, notice, must receive, in other words, Jesus is going to remain in heaven, until the times of the restoration of all things. So in other words, he's there until a future time when he returns and does this restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his prophets since the world began. Now, there's no way we can get into all this today. This this whole idea of how all things get wrapped up in the end. There's a big word for it in, in, uh, in theological circles called eschatology. It's a study of last things. Because it is the consummation or the gathering together of all other things, it's really, really complex. And so we're not going to get into that tonight. Okay? But what does he say in verse 22? He says, For Moses said truly to your fathers, and now he's quoting Deuteronomy 18, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me to hear, uh, like me for, uh, from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things and whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among his people. Now understand what Peter's saying here. In quoting, in quoting Deuteronomy 18, he's wanting them to understand that they knew the Messiah would be this prophet, this one who speaks what God wants spoken. And so they, they, they recognize that, that Peter and the disciples, of course, recognize that. And they're saying, they're saying, hey, Jesus is that prophet, the one who Moses foretold. But don't forget what Moses said. If you reject that prophet, you're lost. Now, we have, I was having a conversation with some guys recently about this idea, and one of the guys was just really, well, actually all the guys were just really bothered by this idea that you have to believe in Jesus to be accepted by God. They, 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 they really were, especially one of them was really like, well, don't you have, isn't what me trying to be the best I can be, surely that's got to be acceptable to God. If God's good, it's got to be acceptable to God. Come on. And we were going round and round circles about this thing. And it's interesting because it, it sounds Attractive. It's very flattering to us as human beings, isn't it? Isn't it we just have to try our best? And that's what everyone's doing, right? We're all trying our best. And can't we just sing Kumbaya and it'll be okay? And I mean, this is, that's very attractive to people. But think about how not only illogical that is, but how torturous that would be. 
And that's the kind of, in a sense, the basic uh, underlying philosophy of Islam is that can't we just do our best so that our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds and then God will accept us? And yet you can talk to any Muslim who takes God seriously, at least the idea that God's a judge seriously, and they take him seriously, and guess what? They have absolutely no assurance they're actually going to make it. Why? Because they're not sure if they're actually doing what they need to do. Think about all the religions that are out there. I'm not just talking about the acceptable ones, the ones that culturally people say are okay. Think about all the, 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 the strange side groups and, the, and the, the offshoots of these things. And they all, many of these things, radically disagree. They can't all be right if they disagree about the same things. So doesn't it make much more sense that God in His grace would say, listen, I'm going to send my son the perfect revelation of who I am and what I want to do so that people could know, okay, it's him or it's nothing. And this is what Peter's saying. It sounds harsh, but he's actually being gracious, saying, guys, don't you realize this is what you've been waiting for? You've been waiting for a recognizable Messiah, the prophet. He would say, here's what God once said. And that's who Jesus is. He's the Word become flesh. That's who he is. Now, he also says in verse 24, Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. It's the major theme of Scripture, Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Now, almost done. Verse 25. This promise... It's not just something that profoundly affects us now or the consummation of all prophetic scripture. But listen, it's the promise that brings the blessing of God. Peter says to these men of Israel, he says, You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our father, St. Abraham. And in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God has raised up his servant Jesus and sent him to what? Bless you. How? and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. It's amazing that the more I talk to people about Jesus and talk about how good he is, and we we, we look at his life or we talk about the things that he did and the the things that maybe he at least represents, it's rare that you meet somebody that says, no, that's that's pretty, it doesn't say that that's not pretty amazing, that he was a pretty amazing guy. That's why you have this kind of concept that's a false concept. It's not a very good concept if you look at Scripture for, for what it says about Jesus. But he goes, well, he was a great teacher. He was just amazing. So they think that because he did teach some pretty profound things, and he did some pretty profound things. And, and they go, wow, that's, yeah, there, there's some good things that come from Jesus. But it's amazing how, when it comes down to it, what they don't want to let go of, what you and I often don't want to let go of, is our sin. See, we hate the sins that people do against us, but we like our sins. That's why we take so we, we, we try so hard to justify them. We try so hard to tell ourselves, no, this one's not that bad. Really, nobody's hurt. But see, the reason God calls us to turn away from our iniquities and to turn to Him is because everyone does get hurt. The payment for sin is death. Sin always brings destruction. This is why God says, don't do it. Sin is basically saying, I want something other than God's best. And anything other than God's best only can bring death. This is why God in his grace says, 
Look, I'm wanting to bless you in saying, turn away from your sin. This is why it's so frustrating. For I get frustrated at myself for this. Because I'll find myself falling into some stupid habit or attitude that I thought, gosh, I've been a Christian for 27 years. When am I going to get rid of this thing? I think how stupid I am. Because at least what I have learned in 27 years is it, it's never good. <laughs> those attitudes and those, those, that unbelief and those actions, those things that I, I think I might be able to justify, actually, not only do I know I can't justify them, but I see how much, they don't, it's not just that they make me feel guilty, it's that they do damage both to me and to those around me. And so understanding that, I see, okay, when God says turn away from those things, he's wanting to bless you just want to say, I, have, I want good for you. That's why I'm saying turn from those things and turn to me. You know the biggest sin that I find myself kind of naturally going towards? It's a sin of self-sufficiency. It's that sin of saying, you know, I can figure this out on my own. I, I, I think I'm pretty clever and I think I, I can think things through and rationalize things through. I think I can do this. That sin of self-sufficiency. I think this is going to be a good thing, and it always goes pear-shaped. I say this because, um, not because I hope you don't think this is me taking my sin lightly. It's just the opposite. It's recognizing that this message is a good message. When Jesus, when, or Peter says about Jesus, look, he sent Jesus to turn us away from our iniquities. It's to bless us. It's to save us from something. So God saved me from the heartbreak of immoral relationships. And guess what? That prepared me to be in the blessing of a healthy marriage. God saved me. He called me to turn away from living a life that was just going to make me happy or get me the things I wanted and call me to live a life that is supposed to be about serving others. And to the degree that I do that, I realize, man, this is some, it is, as Jesus said, it's better to give than receive. It really is. See, God wants, God does want to bless us. It's just that our idea of blessing is always skewed. And God's idea of the blessing is perfect. That's why he says, look, you've got to turn away from your iniquities. That's the blessing. So, that's Acts chapter 3.